0: From Utah Public Radio, this is Undisciplined. Today we're talking about how small parts of big systems can have outsized impacts. We'll be joined by a scientist who is examining the role of carbon monoxide as an agent for healing in our bodies. Then we're gonna hear from a researcher who's trying to figure out how to save the world's most massive living thing, the inorganic chemist and the wildland ecologist. That's Undisciplined, coming up next. This is Undisciplined. I'm Matthew LaPlante. Each week on our show, we interview two researchers from different fields, and then we introduce them to one another, and we just sort of see what happens. It's like a dinner party where the guests are really smart people, and the host is... Well, the host is not quite as smart, but he likes being around smart people. And today, I'm joined by two really smart people. In studio today is Lisa Barreau, whose recent studies in the journal Chemical Biology and the Journal of the American Chemical Society introduce us to the potential of controlled carbon monoxide release to kill cancer in living cells. She's a fellow of the American Association for the Advancement of Science and a native of Brewster, Minnesota, population 473. Lisa, thanks for joining us today.
1: Thank you, Matt. Glad to be here.
0: Also with us today is Paul Rogers. His recent article in PLOS One suggests that the world's most massive living thing is shrinking. And that observation has everyone from the New York Times to Popular Mechanics taking notice. He's the director of the Western Aspen Alliance and a big fan of bicycles and cross-country skiing. Paul Rogers, thanks for being on the show. Thanks for having me, Matt. It's really fun to be here. First up today, the inorganic chemist.
2: We call this news a story about how carbon monoxide can kill Albertans who idle their cars in their garages or at drive-ins or families who don't get their furnaces checked in the fall. That ain't news, Schmidlap. Everyone knows carbon monoxide kills.
0: What you're listening to right now is a 1986 public service announcement from our friends in Alberta, Canada. And indeed, everybody seems to know that carbon monoxide kills but according to our first guest, it might be harnessed to save lives too. That's because a very little bit of carbon monoxide can be used to treat a variety of conditions, including heart attacks, stroke, and cancer. Lisa, bro, let's unpack this a little bit. First, can you tell me about what CO does in large amounts that makes it so dangerous?
1: Well, CO can bind to something called hemoglobin. Hemoglobin is the protein that carries oxygen in the blood. And so when we think of carbon monoxide poisoning, most people associate that with the decreased capacity to carry oxygen. Another way though that CO in large amounts can be detrimental is more at the cellular level, where CO also interacts with other types of proteins, that can cause disturbances in the normal functions of cells and therefore is detrimental.
0: It binds to hemoglobin at 300 times the strength of oxygen. It, it basically hijacks the body's ability to transport O2, is that right? That's correct. So why, if it does this in large amounts, are small amounts beneficial?
1: Well, first let's start with the fact that CO is produced in small amounts in humans. If anyone has a bruise right now, you can look at that bruise and know that the color changes associated with it are indicative of actually the carbon monoxide release reaction that's going on in your body. It is from the breakdown of heme itself, which is part of hemoglobin, that actually produces co And so scientists know that at low concentrations at which it's produced in the body, there are effects that are being generated. What we're trying to understand is how to harness that and use it in ways that can be beneficial to human health. And there's been
0: studies on CO's effect on all kinds of different conditions. Which are the ones that are most interesting to you?
1: What's most interesting to me right now is probably the cancer aspect of this. And when you think about that, controlled delivery of a small amount of CO might allow you to selectively kill cells. So for example, in a tumor environment where you want to selectively kill tumor cells without killing normal cells, delivery of small amounts of CO might allow that to be useful. And we've been looking at some of that in a a cell type environment.
0: Okay, so to take advantage of this, we've got to figure out how to deliver CO in very tiny doses. We do that through something called a CORM, that's C-O-R-M. What's a CORM and what have been the problems with these things in the past?
1: Okay, so a corm is a CO-releasing molecule. And that's just an acronym we use in the field to essentially describe the truck we need to deliver CO. Because as we all know, carbon monoxide is a gas. So we want to deliver it in a way where you control that up to the point where you release the gas. And so a corm is a molecule that, when we tell it to release, will release carbon monoxide. In our lab, we use light to tell it when to release.
0: And you do this through flavonoids, right? can, Can you talk a little bit about how you honed in on these organic pigments as a potential carbon monoxide release delivery truck?
1: This was something that was serendipitous in my lab. We were studying flavonoids for another reason and a student happened to notice that when she left solutions of the material sit out in light, they would change. And that change is something we followed up on, and it turned out that it was a clean carbon monoxide-releasing reaction. So with that thought in mind, and the fact that flavonoids are already well-known in our food sources from fruits and vegetables, we thought, can we harness flavonoids as a new delivery truck for CO by adjusting the chemistry so that we can have them be triggerable.
0: And you can do that through light. How did you figure that part out?
1: Well, first we rebuilt the molecule a little bit. We changed its structure so that it would absorb light that was in the visible region. Visible light is not harmful to humans, and we, we wanted to make sure we were using light that was not harmful. So once we changed the structure, then we examined chemically Will CO release still happen? And we found that it did. And so we've made a family of molecules now that we can use to explore CO release in biological environments.
0: So you can also track these things as they move through
1: the body, right? So flavonoids have another property called fluorescence that will allow us to look at where the molecules are located before they release the CO which is a really useful thing to have because we can see whether or not, for example, they have localized where you want them to localize. We've built molecules that go to specific parts of the cell, like mitochondria, and molecules that simply enter cells and are just uh, diffusing within the cell. And we can know about that from these fluorescence studies.
0: So what's the next step? What are you doing next with these things?
1: We're trying to optimize some of the properties of them. And so we need to have molecules, for example, that work with wavelengths of light that are particularly good for human use. Red light, in particular, will penetrate the human skin and allows allows it to penetrate deeper into tissue. And so what we're trying to do is adjust the structure of our molecules again so that they absorb the correct wavelength of light and we can trigger them with this more deeply penetrating red light. That's one current goal. We're also looking at other biological applications of these molecules uh, and how we might use them to look at the role of CO in biology.
0: What are your biggest challenges right now?
1: Synthetic chemistry is never easy. And so you have to work through steps. And students, PhD students, learn along the way that these things take time and you have to overcome problems. In biological experiments, you're always looking at complicated type experiments. We're doing them in cells right now that need high degrees of reproducibility. And so the experiments take quite a bit of time in order to produce a result that we consider conclusive.
0: This has got to be so exciting. You're on the forefront of what potentially could be a whole new line of treatments and therapies.
1: It's really exciting. We think we're adding to the field because what we're bringing is this this new delivery device, which is based in something that is derived from nature. And we think that approach is one that could be really beneficial to the field. Matt, I wanted to mention before we go on, I couldn't do any of this work without a collaborator on this campus. Professor Abby Benninghoff brings the biological expertise to this project. And it's our collaboration that really makes this work.
0: Do you think you can help me get her on the show sometime?
1: Oh, I can arm twist her for sure.
0: <laughs> that's Lisa Burrow, who is part of a team whose recent studies have demonstrated that flavonoids can be used to deliver a tiny dose of carbon monoxide in a way that's trackable, targetable, and triggerable. Lisa, there's someone I'd like you to, to meet. Can you stick around for a bit to talk to our next guest? Yes,
1: yeah, happy to do so.
0: Next up, the wildland ecologist.
1: Smiling faces all around Laughter is the only sound. Memories that can't
2: grow old.
1: But to school, Aspen Glow.
0: That is the late, great John Denver singing Aspen Glow, which, okay, wasn't one of his best songs, but it's a nice tribute to his longtime home in Aspen, Colorado, which, of course, is named for aspen trees that stretch across the Rocky Mountains. One thing you might not realize when you're looking at an aspen grove is that most aspen trunks are part of a larger underground network, which is interconnected at the roots. These singular organisms are called aspen clones, and they can grow to a half acre, an acre, even a few acres, and one in central Utah has been documented to have grown to more than 100 acres in size. It's estimated to weigh in at 13 million pounds. That makes it the most massive known living thing in the world. They call it Pando. And according to my next guest's latest research, it's shrinking and fast. Paul Rogers, let's start with a little background. Do we have any idea how this Aspen clone got so big in the first place?
2: Wait, Matt, can't we just listen to Lisa talk? The whole show? I'm learning so much.
0: <laughs> I, I can cancel you and just, we can just go to her for the rest of the show, but then this
2: wouldn't be undisciplined. It would just be disciplined. That's a good point.
0: Do we have any idea of how this aspen
2: clone got so big in the first place? Well, we can make some guesses, but it's hard to know what's happening underground, and that's where a lot of the mystery of aspen takes place in the root connections, as well as what's happened back through time. Uh, surely this, this particular clone is centuries old, if not likely millennia old. Since we can't look underground, how, how do we know that it's 100 acres? Well, what we know is, originally this was demarcated by a plant physiologist who just looked at leaf sizes and shapes and went around and, and discerned it from the adjoining clones of Aspen. This area is full of Aspen. And he came up with this first estimate. This was back in the 1960s or 70s. This is a guy named Burton Barnes from the University of Michigan. And subsequently, other people worked on it. Michael Grant from the University of Colorado gave it the name Pando that we've now become used to. Pando is Latin for eye spread. And then finally, a a colleague here at Utah State University, Karen Mock, is the one that actually genetically tested the aspen within that stand as well as surrounding stands. And nicely, she came up with almost the exact same boundaries that Burton Barnes did 40 years earlier. We know that this is all one organism because all of those stems, some 47,000, are genetically identical. But now this thing, this massive thing,
0: it's shrinking. And you you can actually see this if you know what to look for. Take us maybe on an imaginary walk through this forest. What do you see that troubles you?
2: But sort of shrinking through attrition, becoming thinner and thinner. And you can observe that through this 72-year aerial photo history that we put in the most recent paper. And so it's just becoming thinner. There's more spaces between the tree. But the actual aerial extent is about the same as it was probably for a long time. So walking into this grove, and now I'm going to step away a little bit from science and, and t- tell you something that is hard to define. It, it's kind of mystical in a sense, at least for me, and getting that feeling of being among something that is so massive that you are one small being among that. Now, I've, I've spent many hours and days and weeks in the, inside this grove. It's an amazing feeling just to be in there. But basically what what I'm seeing when I walk through there is a lot of dead trees, some standing, some laying on the ground. But these are all the mature trees. The real key here is what I'm not seeing. There are whole missing generations. And that's a serious problem, especially for this type of aspen forest.
0: And you had a lot of theories about why this was happening. Now you think you have a pretty good idea of some of the key reasons. Can you talk about those?
2: We've, we've probably nailed that down. It, it's, it's easier to find the problem than it is the solution, though. And so it's clear that browsing animals, particularly deer and domestic cattle in this sense, have been munching the young ones for a while. And if you imagine a society of human beings and we keep sweeping away the babies, I know that sounds kind of gruesome.
0: I mean, it sounds great if you've ever been on an airplane. Yeah.
2: (laughs) But demographically, once we start adding up the years and the decades, we're going to start to see a society made of one generation. And as that generation ages, we become in a really critical position where the generation is all senior citizens and they're dying off a natural process. But where's the next generation to back them up? It's absent.
0: And you figured this out in a relatively simple way. You put up a fence.
2: Yeah, we put up fences. We did experiments within the fence. We put up a second fence. We measured a lot of areas inside and outside. We did a lot of that kind of thing, and and, uh, there's some good news and some not-so-good news there. It's Basically, one of our fences worked really well that we constructed in 2013, about 15 acres, so we doubled down, literally, and put up about a 30-acre fence, which is doing very poorly. That's only half of Pando. The other half is unprotected. So we have over 80% of the entire clone is in a, what I would call a failing state at this point.
0: Now, you've honed in on these browsing animals. Weren't there deer and
2: elk in this area always? What, what changed? What changed is deer and elk were historically moved around by predators and their numbers were kept in check somewhat by predators. So it's both the movement and the numbers that's critical with these similar situations across the western U.S. So that's a big change. Uh, our, Our modern predators are hunters and cars, but that's not enough to keep these in check. And then especially in an area that's adjacent to recreation, people are not allowed to hunt and the deer quickly, quickly learn that.
0: So one of the suggestions, I gather, is perhaps to rely on sharpshooters to thin out some of these herds that are coming through.
2: Yeah, now we move quickly from ecology to people, and that becomes difficult. So we have the economic system of hunting, hunting licenses, and funding state agencies kind of coming into battle with an ecological system. So that's problematic. Similarly, we have cattle grazing, and we have culture, and and the economics of cattle grazing, and those will be difficult issues to work out. So how do we perform triage on a 106-acre grove while we're waiting to work out those longer-term solutions? And and, uh, dumb as we are, all we could come up with was fences.
0: You've said that saving this one individual clone might offer us some lessons that could help us save other organisms. Can you unpack that a little bit?
2: Yeah. A really key point with aspen ecosystems across the West is they support great biodiversity. They're known as keystone species. So as goes that species, so the hundreds of plants and animals that are dependent on that. So how do we get into this? Well, we're starting with a small model where everything's genetically identical and we're trying to understand that system well. And hopefully we can learn something uh, about how animals browse, how they defend themselves, how we can save them and work with humans to work in more complex landscapes. You've also said that if we
0: can't save this one organism, big as it is, if we can't save this one thing, that also says something about
2: our greater interactions with the Earth. That's very true. We look at ourselves and we say, here's a compact, defined area And if we cannot handle, we as a society cannot handle preserving this to a more sustainable state, what does that say about much bigger and larger issues, including global climate change, for example? It doesn't say anything very nice, does it? No, it doesn't. But I have great hope. And I think that we can come together and work out solutions with parties that have different interests. And again, I'm quickly moving away from ecology into perhaps sociology or some other field.
0: That's Paul Rogers, whose recent study in PLOS One suggests that there might be ways to save the world's most massive living thing. There's someone I'd like you to meet. Ready for that?
2: I'm already ready.
0: Well, Paul, this is inorganic chemist Lisa Burrow. And Lisa, this is wildland ecologist Paul Rogers.
1: Great to meet you, Paul.
0: Great to meet you, too. So one of the things that I noticed when I was talking to both of you is that your work involves the ways in which very small parts of a very big system can play a very outsized role if we just look at it the right way. To me, it just says something about how important everything is.
1: I was sitting back thinking about the word signaling as Paul was talking too because when I do my research, carbon monoxide is a signaling molecule and it signals and triggers other things to happen. And so as I listened to Paul, I was thinking about the triggers he was kind of bringing up that might be influencing what he's looking at. It made me think about a question, actually, I'll just throw out to Paul, which is when you look at the change that's going on in Pando right now, can I look at other Aspen growths and think the similar processes are going on?
2: Yeah, most definitely. There are similar processes going on in in Aspen forests, as I suggested, across the West and North America and, and actually across Eurasia. And th- that brought me to my, my counter question. As we, we're sitting here talking, I'm thinking about hidden signals and things that we can't see. And chemical ecology is a field of study that I'm starting to learn about and know little about. But I, it, it tipped me off that Pando and all Aspen clones have a chemical makeup that makes the leaves taste good or bad. And they're defended by chemistry. And that it is um, closely tied to genetics. And so it's, it's a, these hidden signals, these hidden mechanisms, I think, in a, in a sense, that's the new frontier of science. Uh, we're not finding new lands, but we're going in deeper and we're finding these connections perhaps that we didn't know about and are not obvious to people.
1: The first thing I have to say as a chemist is yay, <laughs> because when we think about chemistry, we're thinking about the molecular level and mechanisms that are occurring at the molecular level, and so I get excited when I hear things like chemical ecology and thinking about how chemistry can contribute to understanding the kinds of things you look at, which are, are much more a part of our daily lives and easier to see than the molecular level.
2: Yeah, and, and and at the other end of the spectrum, sometimes I'm thinking so big and about big connections that people uh, write me off immediately and say, that's that's too big, that's too large, it's our globe. And, and I'm starting a new organization called Aspen Conservation Consortium when I'm trying to connect scientists around the whole Northern Hemisphere to look at some of these issues. But that's something that's a little hard for people to swallow at this point, and looking at something called mega conservation.
1: One of the thoughts that crossed my mind, too, about the, the similarities and differences between us is I just want to ask you how did you become interested in aspens?
2: Oh well, I think, and and you hear this from people. I hear this in every audience I speak to. Someone comes up to me and say, "This is my favorite tree. It's so beautiful." And I can't claim to be any any deeper than that. It just sort of captured me. I think the flickering of the leaves has a hypnotic. Some would say it's a restful or peaceful feeling. So you know, I I keep deferring from science, but but I think a lot of us do. We're we're brought in by something that's a little deeper than just exploration. And then I kind of. I saw systems that were perhaps deteriorating, and I thought, well, this is something that I would enjoy applying myself to.
1: When I think about chemistry, one of the things that, that thrilled me about it was just the puzzle involved, because chemistry is really a big puzzle, and we're working to figure out how to fit pieces, new pieces into the puzzle and how to use them so when I, I think about how I got into science, that's where it came from is the kind of puzzle aspect of it.
2: Lisa, I have a question for you. Uh, you know, people have a visceral connection to outdoor places and beautiful places and aspen environments and wildlife. But you have a, maybe a more difficult task ahead of you. People are not going to show you large, gorgeous photographs of carbon molecules, perhaps.
1: Yeah, but- this, this is a great question, actually. And how do you get people excited about things you can't see? One of the things in our research that I often talk with students about is the beautiful colors of our molecules. We have to have a light absorption for the CO releasing process and so I can show them for example solutions of our compounds that go across the rainbow of colors and we talk about how chemistry controls what those colors are and subsequently controls how we can use them with light. And so I try to get them excited with something visual
2: I call myself an applied ecologist, and I was thinking, I was looking at your papers and trying to understand uh, some of the titles that you wrote. I didn't really know many of the words in the titles. However, when I heard the connection between carbon uh, release and possible cures for cancer, obviously that's something very applied and compelling.
1: Absolutely. And so, again, when we think about uh, the chemistry we're doing, and how it might impact life, we find you know projects that are amenable to looking at things like biomedical applications. And I'm really a fundamental chemist at heart, but we've been able to, particularly through my collaboration with Abby, start to explore how you really use these molecules. And anti-cancer approaches are one area where people are particularly excited for new approaches. Standard chemotherapy, therapeutic uh, approaches, we all know, have side effects that can be very detrimental. And so we're looking at new options. And Abby and I think about this in terms of how do we make the best molecules we can to be tested out.
2: Wow, I have a bumper sticker now for you, Lisa. I can't see it, but I need it.
1: <laughs> That's a good one. <laughs> so another
0: connection that I made when we were chatting is the idea of something being both bad and good at the same time, depending on the dose. Aspen thrive when there's a fire. But of course, if the fire is too big and wipes everything out, it can fundamentally change an entire ecosystem. Our bodies can benefit from carbon monoxide. But of course, if we get too much of that, that's really bad. Do your experiences with these ideas, the ideas of things being both good and bad change the way you look at other things around you?
2: I thrive on the idea we call disturbance, forest disturbance, ecological disturbance. And there's always a downside. And again, I love I love to ride that border between physical and social sciences. And so a lot of these disturbances are not very friendly to humans and, and our human structures that we put up, thinking about large fires or avalanches or other things. But my friends, the Aspen, are just coming alive then. You're, we're giving them a new, new birth. And now my colleague, Karen Mock at Utah State University, is really exploring the idea of aspen seedlings, which is something just 10 years ago that we called rare. And they come in in these situations, in very specific situations, and give us genetic diversity, which increases our resilience. So I guess in my little world, I seem to always spin that that negative thing and back into something very positive for these ecosystems that are really needed.
1: And I would say, from my perspective, that's what makes it fascinating. That's what makes the science so fascinating, because you're talking about modifying, let's say, how much of something we take at a very minimal difference level. And you'll see dramatically different biological responses. And as a scientist, figuring out how that works is, is fascinating. And so I think that's one thing, again, I share with students to talk about the devil is in the details. And as scientists, we have to probe those details to really understand what's going on. And there's just so much we don't know yet. And that's what makes being a scientist all the better.
0: Unfortunately, we're just about out of time. Paul Rogers, thank you for joining us on Undisciplined. I really enjoyed this. Thanks for having me. And Lisa Burrow, thank you.
1: This was wonderful. Thank you, Matt.
0: If you'd like to participate in this discussion, you can engage with us on Twitter by following us at So Undisciplined, Undisciplined is produced by Utah Public Radio. Our producer is Alyssa Roberts. Our theme music is Little Idea by Benjamin Tussaud. And I'm Matthew LaPlante. Thanks for listening. Now go have big ideas.